Austin Stone, and any friends who might be tuning in with us today, I greet you in the name of our ever gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My name is Andre Gray, and as of two months ago, I serve as one of the pastors here at the Austin Stone. I have the distinct honor and privilege of leading our South congregation, who I affectionately refer to as my Southside fam. While I would have much preferred to be with you live and in the flesh this morning, I am thankful that we get to remain connected in this way as we worship our God through song and word. We are in week two of what seems to be our temporary new normal. As we navigate the reality of this coronavirus pandemic, it has been wreaking havoc around the world. Many of you have spent the last week navigating the chaos of empty grocery stores, closed schools, and even loss of employment. Life has thrown what seems to be a curveball in this season. And my hope for us today is that as we open up God's word together, we would find an unwavering source of comfort and hope in these unprecedented times. As has been our norm for quite some time now, we are continuing our systematic line by line, verse by verse journey through the gospel of Matthew together as a church. Last week, Pastor Ross helped us by kicking off our time in chapter 12, where we see Jesus confronted by the religious leaders of his day as they were obsessed with regulating Jesus's practices on the Sabbath, all the while missing his invitation to find true rest in him. Today, we'll pick up that point and spend our time in verses 15 through 21, where we see Matthew display what I describe as a portrait of God's servant. Whatever device you might be using this morning, or maybe you have your physical Bibles in your hand, I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, and let's read our passage together. Matthew 12, verses 15 through 21. The gospel writer pens these words. He says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry out aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. If you ever had the opportunity to walk into the Sistine Chapel, you would immediately encounter and be overwhelmed by one of the most famous works of art to come out of the Renaissance. Michael Angelo, often considered to be a genius and one of the most eminent artists of all time, spent 
four years of his life, painting the frescoes that adorn the ceiling of this chapel. As you stand in the center of this space with your head leaned back and your eyes fixed vertically, you would see what is arguably one of the most widely recognized portraits in the world. A portrait known as the creation of Adam. Although many of us might not know this portrait by that name, we would recognize it immediately as the portrait of God reaching down to Adam. God's finger is featured as being outstretched toward Adam as Adam seems to be lifting his finger back to God. We're all familiar with this portrait. But what you may not have known is that Michelangelo had several significant messages hidden within his portrait. You see, it's with careful attention that we can see that while God's hand is sort of overextended and eagerly outstretched toward Adam, Adam's hand is postured in this sort of apathetic and almost a lifeless way towards God. See, the postures in this portrait tell the entire story of the Bible. God, in his steadfast love and unending grace, is eagerly reaching out his hand mercilessly towards mankind. However, mankind, in our sinful rebellion, are always rejecting God's kindness towards us. Now, on Unless you're a student of the history of art, chances are you wouldn't perceive the features of God and Adam that Michelangelo intended to highlight in his portrait. This is true for most works of art. You see, when we walk into galleries and attempt to comprehend portraits, we often have to have a guide or a curator who has studied the work help us gain proper insights from them. And this gospel account of Matthews, like an art gallery, is filled with beautiful portraits that all give insight to the person who is described as God's servant. The Messiah who would fulfill all the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth. And as we take time today, to consider some of the features of this portrait that is on display, I, I want to briefly take into account the backdrop in which this portrait is set. You see, the passage preceding ours ends with verse 14, where we see that the Pharisees have, have sort of grown increasingly frustrated with the teachings and work of Jesus. Tensions arising and these religious leaders who are shaping up to be his enemies take up counsel and conspire to kill him for healing a man on the Sabbath. You see, it's in the face of this imminent danger that Jesus does something that I, I find to be quite interesting. Rather than take up arms to protect himself and establish his kingdom by force, Jesus quietly withdraws. You see, to many, 
this could be perceived as some sort of cowardly move. But it is quite the opposite. You see, this is nothing short of, of what you might call a tactical retreat until the proper time. But even in retreat, he continues to do the very thing that upset the Pharisees in the first place. Verse 15 tells us that, that many followed him and he healed them all. Jesus continued his ministry of mercy as he healed the sick. However, just like he tries to avoid violence with the Pharisees in his withdrawal, he also tries to avoid notoriety and prestige with the people that he was healing. Jesus, in verse 16, orders the people not to make him know. He refuses violence and he refuses ostentation and quietly goes about his works of mercy. You see, these series of events are what prompt Matthew to take Isaiah's ancient portrait of Jesus and put it on display here in verses 18 through 21. The Jewish people would have known this passage from Isaiah by heart. They were no strangers to this text. But just like many of us know Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, but, but, but in this gospel gallery, Matthew acts as a sort of curator, if you will, giving hidden insights to portraits of the Messiah that the Jewish people may not have seen before. Just as many of us may not have perceived the hidden messages in Michelangelo's painting, Matthew is pointing out details in the Hebrew scriptures that paint the picture of who the Messiah truly is. And as we examine this portrait today, I want us to take for our consideration three features of Isaiah's portrait that Matthew wants his readers to see. Jesus's status, Jesus's service, and Jesus's success. Three features that I believe Matthew is deriving from the portrait of Jesus. These three features, Jesus' status, Jesus' service, and Jesus' success. Let's first examine the feature of Jesus' status together. Isaiah's prophecy, he mentions in uh, two key reality about God's servant. We see in verse 18 that this servant is both chosen and beloved by God. You see, Jesus is neither pitied, nor is he some sort of desperate sort of plan B for God. He is, in fact, the first round draft pick who was chosen before the universe was ever set into motion to carry out the plans and purposes of the Father. Matthew is attempting to show his readers that Jesus is not some blasphemous rabbi. He is the chosen Messiah that Israel and the rest of the world has been waiting for. This man that the Pharisees wanted dead was not one of many options, but he was the one and only option. 
Pastor John Piper puts it this way. He says, he says, God is not given options. He makes options. Hear this. He did not canvas the Jewish candidates for Messiah and chose Mary's son. He had begotten from all eternity, the only one who could bring hope to a lost world. Christ came into the world as the eternally chosen one. This, my friends, is an earth shattering reality because Jesus's status rests solely in the fact that God chose him and loves him. You see, the Pharisees did not choose him. The Gentiles did not choose him. The, the Jewish people did not choose him, but God chose him. See, his ministry is both authorized by God and it is pleasing to God, the text tells us. Jesus demonstrates this through, through, through healing the wounded and extending mercy through good works, even on the Sabbath day. Because you see, if God appointed Jesus as the Messiah, then no one has the authority to deny him as such. If God appointed Jesus as the Messiah, then no one has the authority to deny him as such. Furthermore, if God appointed Jesus as the Messiah, then hear me, church family, we need to look no further for a savior in our time of trouble. We need to look no further. You see, Matthew is helping his readers to see that their long-awaited Messiah had come and with him came the redemption that had been promised to both the Jew and Gentile. You see, the world has been desperately crying out for help to fix a problem that we are powerless against. And this feature of Isaiah's portrait that Matthew highlights, it, it announces that help was no longer simply coming, but that it had finally arrived. And in this time, when for many of us it feels as though so much is out of control. We're looking for someone, anyone who can lead us and show us strength. Church family, isn't it powerful to know that God has sent his son to lead us? That even in the middle of a pandemic, Jesus is in full control. That's the reality of his status. That, that he holds in the grip of his hand all authority, that there is nothing that happens on earth or in heaven that is outside of the peer view of the sovereignty of this king, that, that, that he is really and truly in control. And he proved that by stepping into this world. You see, Jesus' status as chosen and beloved by God undergirds not only who he is, but everything that he does. Interestingly enough, the, the time frame in which Isaiah gave this prophecy, it was, it was fairly common to hear stories of people being, being chosen by gods. 
these chosen people were typically rulers and, and kings and warriors of the day, appointed with so-called divine authority to conquer and destroy all who would oppose. However, Isaiah announces that unlike Unlike the surrounding cultures and nations, the God of Israel would be choosing a servant as his appointed Messiah. That, 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 that the God of Israel would be appointing a servant as his chosen Messiah. You see, you see this idea of God's chosen being a servant totally flips the ancient understanding of divine authority on its head. And as Jesus lives out in his status that is given to him by God, he is flipping the idea that the Jewish people would have had of the Messiah on its head. You see, because although Jesus had this, this God-given authority, he exercises it in a rather peculiar way. This leads us to consider our second feature of the portrait that Isaiah uh, paints for us and Matthew puts on display. Feature number two, Jesus's service. Jesus's service. Recall with me that, that Jesus, he withdraws from the Pharisees who are plotting to kill him. And in spite of the fact that we know that he has every right to be there and to continue his ministry. Now, the question I have to ask is, why does Jesus not only withdraw from danger, but he, but he tells people not to tell anyone what he is doing? Jesus, in this moment, is not, is not simply trying to hide in, in cowardice. Jesus is turning upside down the notion of what the Messiah was expected to be. You see, the Jewish people in the first century expected their Messiah to come in as a political leader of such. He, he would overthrow the Roman Empire and restore in, independence to Israel. But Jesus instead comes as a humble, gentle, and meek Messiah. He didn't come to tobble and to take by force. Jesus comes in humbly and gently as God's servant. You see, Jesus's retreat here is tactical. He doesn't desire to draw the eye of the Roman Empire nor is he seeking fame or notoriety. He deserves all of the fame and notoriety, to be clear, and has the power to crush the Roman Empire. But instead, Jesus reflects the way in which God uses the weak to overcome the strong. You see, Isaiah makes mention of, of this, this, this idea of a, a bruised reed not being broken by the hand of this servant. Isaiah is calling to our attention a, a famous Assyrian saying where the leaders of that time, they would, they would brag that anyone who does not submit will be snapped like a reed. But instead, Isaiah shows us 
that God, this, this chosen servant of God, this chosen servant of the God of Israel, that he was coming not to break Israel, not to snap the reed, but rather to redeem Israel without even breaking the bruised reed. You see, Jesus, Jesus did not come to harm the broken, but, but rather Jesus came to heal them. Jesus is not, he, he is not interested in hurting the wounded, but Jesus is in the business of restoring those that find themselves wounded and broken in this world. Not only that, Isaiah takes another picture for us and brings us into this idea of a smoldering wick not being quenched by this servant of God. You see, a, a smoldering wick, it's, it's, a sort of, it's a sort of thing that's on the verge of being extinguished. And the chosen servant of God, Christ, will not only refrain from coming in and crushing those who oppose him, but he will restore and preserve a life that is on the verge of being extinguished. You see, Jesus' service not only extends to those who love him, but it also extends to his enemies. That's the, that's the kind of servant that Jesus is, that that is the sort of Messiah that we are dealing with here, that, that, he, that, that he doesn't simply draw near to those who draw near to him, but he is always drawing near to those who, who, who would ostracize him and push him back. You see, Jesus, Jesus is an equal opportunity extender of love and mercy and grace. He extends to all. He extends to those who love him, and Jesus extends to those who hate him. And friends, in this season, where so many of us feel so vulnerable, so weak, so, so broken, isn't it powerful to consider that Jesus won't break us? That when Jesus looks at us in our weak state, that when he looks at us in our vulnerability, that when he looks at us in our weakness, that when he looks at us in our brokenness, Jesus does not see something worthy of being broken, but rather something being worthy of being redeemed. See, this reality, it, it, it invites us to the understanding that we can come to him in our bruised state and he cares for us and is gentle with us. Jesus cares for us and is gentle with us. That, 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 is, that is the ethos of his service, that, that Jesus' service, that, that, that his work, his ministry is defined by gentleness and humility and a meek spirit. That he walks in and with tender care and tender love and all humility, Jesus stretches his hand towards those of us that are broken, towards those of us that feel weak and have nowhere else to turn. Jesus' hand is extended towards you and I this morning as he showcases the eternal love of God for his people. So, 
We see that the servant of Israel has been chosen, that he has all authority, that he is beloved by God, and he comes in the form of a servant. But to what end? What, what is the end result of his service? What, 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 is, what, what, what is his work made of? What does it all culminate towards? Matthew, I believe, helps us to see this as we examine the final feature of this portrait, Jesus's success. Jesus's success. The last part of verse 20 in our passage says that, that Jesus will pursue his ministry. This servant of God will pursue his ministry until he brings justice to victory. And in his name will the Gentiles hope. You see, this passage in Isaiah, in the Hebrew, actually translates to, to something like the Gentiles wait expectantly for instruction. You see, this is the promise that Jesus' success doesn't exclusively apply to the people of Israel. That, that, that Jesus' success is not only for a select few, but it is for the entire world. It, it applies to all of us who find ourselves in Christ Jesus. You see, God's promise is that one day justice will come to victory. It is a promise to bring hope and restoration to all who would humbly repent and trust in him. You see, the tables will be turned one day. The meek shall inherit the earth, not the strong. Those who mourn will be comforted. The, the weeds will be gathered and thrown into the fire. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Isaiah, he gives us his own commentary on this part of the portrait. Look at what he says in Isaiah 11, verses 3 through 4. He says, he, says, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall slay the wicked. You see, justice will finally come to victory when the wicked who do not repent, those who do not trust in Jesus are going to be ultimately punished. But the bruised reeds, those of us that come in our weakness, in our weakness, in our humility, and in our brokenness are vindicated and raised to glory. And this success, this success of ushering in the justice and hope would not be brought about by force, but rather by death. You see, Jesus, in his commitment to the plan of the Father to bring about the victory that the world so desperately needed, would endure the brutality of a Roman cross as he paid the penalty for the sins of the world, the penalty for your sin and mine. He would die at the hands of his enemies and be buried in a borrowed tomb. But the day was promised and it surely came when Jesus would not stay dead, 
but he would ultimately conquer sin and death as he flexed the full measure of his power in resurrection glory. You see, Jesus' success is a result of him doing the impossible despite all odds and extending that success to all who would trust him as their savior. This is the good news of the gospel for you and I this morning that, that Jesus has taken on the greatest task that the world has ever known. And not only did he take on the challenge, but he in fact conquered. Jesus did not simply die, but he is in fact alive again. And he is reigning and ruling today and forevermore. You see our text, it closes with a worldwide promise. In his name, will the Gentiles hope? The message of Christ's forgiveness and tenderness is not limited to the bruised reeds of Israel. Even though Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the good news of his final victory over evil will reach to every nation. And there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation who set their hope on Jesus Christ because of the reality of his success. Jesus, in conquering the grave, has secured for us a better reality, a hope, a hope that stands eternal and is unending. But as we close our time this morning, church family, I, I'm sure you're wondering, well, well, what of this portrait? What of these features that we see drawn out of the portrait painted by the prophet Isaiah? But what can we learn from the insights that Matthew, the curator, has shown us? What does that mean for our lives today? Three quick applications that I want to point out for us as we close our time this morning. See, Jesus' status is not simply a status that is his own, but Jesus now decides and delights in sharing his status with those who would walk with him, those who would trust in him, Jesus, in his chosenness, in his belovedness, and in all his authority, extends his status to you and I and says, if you would trust in me, you too can share in this status. You too can be seen as chosen by God, loved by the Father, pleasing in the, in the sight of God, that you and I, that if we are in Christ Jesus, we don't get to simply look at his status and delight in the reality of who he is, but you and I get to share in that reality. The scriptures tell us that, that we are in fact a royal priesthood. Those of us that are in Christ, this is who we are. We are a royal priesthood and we are co-heirs with this Christ. You see, the, the good news of Jesus's status is that Jesus also has the authority to share it. 
And for you and I that are, that are trusting in him this morning, you and I get to, get to share in that status of Jesus. We, we, get to, we get to walk in the reality of who he is and take on his reality as our own. But not only do we get to share in the status of Jesus, but because of our status shared with this servant of God, now we also have an obligation to exercise the reality of our status, the, the reality of who we are and our authority in Jesus. We have a responsibility to exercise it in the ways that our king also did. You see, our service, the, the way that we live out our ministry and faith and lives ought to reflect the service of the servant whom we trust. You see, Jesus' service was marked by gentleness and humility and love and meekness. You and I, our responsibility, if we are in Christ Jesus, is not simply to bask in our new status, but to extend it for the vulnerable to reach our hands and extend towards those that are broken and weak and wounded and say, come. There is a one, there is a servant who loves you, who sees you, who cares for you, and who is determined to heal you. That's our invitation this morning, church family, that we get to share in his status and now you and I get to live our lives in direct reflection of the sort of service that he has extended to us, we now have the immense privilege of extending it to others. And lastly, what do we make of Jesus's success? See, the reality of Jesus's success brings us into this idea of being able to hold fast in the middle of the storm, that we can remain calm in the midst of crisis and trial. You see, we have this worldwide promise now. Because of what Jesus has done, because of his success, we have this worldwide promise in a season of what is now worldwide pandemic, induced by panic, that there is in fact hope, that God, has provided hope for the peoples of the world through the work of his servant son, church family. You and I this morning have the ability to hope. We do not have to be bogged down by fear. We do not have to give into panic. We do not have to allow the realities and the situations of our lives or even the reality of our present day. Even in the face of a coronavirus pandemic, you and I have the ability to stand firm on the rock of Jesus and hope forevermore. That we don't have to lose hope. We don't have to give into fear. You and I, because of Jesus's success, have a hope that is unwavering, that is unbreakable, it is unshakable, and it will keep us until we see him again. It kind of reminds me of the time when the movie Infinity War was first released and everyone was rushing to the movie theater. And they were excited to see this movie. And I can distinctly remember watching this movie with a crowd of people around me. 
And as we get to the point in the movie where, where all of the heroes begin to die, you can, you can begin to hear people shedding tears. People were crying because their favorite superheroes were dying. And I won't lie, I was crying too as the, the Black Panther was, was on his way out. But, but, but it dawned on me quickly after that, that our, our sadness, our, our sort of, this, this idea of being sad about our heroes dying, that that didn't have to last long. But we knew that they were coming back again. We, we knew the end of the story. And so you and I were invited into, into being excited again about what the end will be. And in a similar fashion, hear me, hear me, church family. You and I get to live from a position and a posture of knowing the end of the story. We do not have to wonder. We do not have to guess. We know what the end of the story is. And because we know the end, you and I now have the ability to stand firm in full joy and in full satisfaction as we hope in the status, in the service, in the success of our King, God's great servant, Jesus the Christ of Nazareth. Let's pray. Father, Father, as we take in the full picture, the full portrait of, of your chosen servant, Jesus, this morning, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see him rightly today. Lord, I pray that we would find our strength in the reality of the status that Jesus holds, the authority that is in his hands. Father, I pray that we would be marked as a people of gentleness and humility as we live in our world in service that reflects the one whom we serve. And Father, I pray that, that fear and anxiety and panic that might be swelling up in us, even in a time such as this, Father, I pray that, Lord, you would, you would swell that fear, that you would remove that panic, that you would diminish that anxiety as we press on into the hope of the success of Jesus that as we consider all that he has accomplished, most notably the fact that he resurrected from the grave, is alive and reigning at the right hand of the Father this morning. Lord, would you give us a steadfast hope and unwavering confidence in the reality of who our, our servant is and the reality that we serve the King. Lord, if there was ever a time that we needed you, is there, if there was ever a time that we needed a clearer picture of this servant, it would be now. And so, Father, would you help us to see that clearly? Would you help us to trust where we do not trust? Would you keep us steadfast in seasons of trial and tribulation? And Father, we pray for all of these things in your good and mighty and matchless name. Amen.